Do you often have a sense that so many things in our world just aren't as they should be? I mean, do you sometimes look around and see all the pain and destruction in our world? And, and deep inside, you think to yourself, something has gone terribly wrong. Maybe we feel the weight of that now more than ever as we have instant access to news from all over the world in just a matter of seconds. We see images of hurricanes and natural disasters, poverty and homelessness, violence and war. And we don't have to travel far to see the suffering of so many people. No matter how much good news there may be, there is always enough bad news to remind us that there's something fundamentally wrong with our world. Our world is not as it should be. Our story began with so much beauty and wholeness, and yet something has gone terribly wrong. But isn't that fairly typical when it comes to stories? Tragedy or calamity of some sort almost always strikes, and there's usually someone behind it all, the bad guy, the enemy. In every great story, there is a villain. So quick show of hands or let us know in the chat, okay? And be honest, who here would admit that they love an evil villain? <laughs> in movies, they're the bad guys, but they also make the story much more exciting. So I'll tell you what, I'll name a movie and you tell me the villain, okay? This first one will be fairly easy. In The Wizard of Oz, the villain is, right, the Wicked Witch of the West. I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too. Sorry, I couldn't help but I had to try. <laughs> in Infinity War, the villain is, Thanos, right. <laughs> Wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley. And The Dark Knight showcased one of the most evil villains ever. And maybe my favorite. Who is it? The Joker, with that haunting evil laugh that reminds us he would love for chaos to reign worldwide. All of these make-believe stories have an evil character. But in our true story of a king and his kingdom community, despite what you may have been told, uh, the real villain is not a person. It's a word. It's a word that tells us of a force, a pattern, an evil that has brought tremendous conflict and hardship. Uh, what is it that has caused so much to go wrong in our world? It's a three-letter word, sin. Sin. In our current series, we're exploring what we believe as a community of Christ followers. And you'll quickly see that each week builds upon the last. So if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to check it out. And do all you can to stay with us through this entire eight-week series, as each week is can't-miss stuff. If you're seeking, we hope this series will help you understand what we believe so you can decide for yourself whether or not it's true. If you're growing in your faith and want to understand more about your beliefs, this series will deepen the theological foundation upon which your beliefs are based. You might be with us today and feel rather confident in your faith. This series will challenge you to examine and, if necessary, realign what you believe with the truths found in Scripture. And finally, if you describe yourself as a bit of a skeptic, we're glad you're with us. And our hope is that this series will make sure you truly understand what you might be rejecting and not some false version of Christianity. Truth is, this series is for all of us. So let's talk about what we believe. Uh, what we believe is a true story of a king and his kingdom community. And let me remind you where the story started. You might say this is the way it was. Uh, the story starts with a God who is love. He's a community of oneness, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and spirit. This God who is love created a world that was good. He created the heavens and the earth and all of the living things. And he created people to join in his community of love. And in the beginning, everything was perfect. God's kingdom was being realized on earth. 
And there's a biblical word for this. The word is shalom. Shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, where natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are abundantly active. And so all of creation was functioning as the creator intended and designed, and there was harmony between the creator and created. The result of everything working as God intended was mutual flourishing. The world could not have been a better place. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes shalom in this way. Shalom is what we long for. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Where there is shalom, there is nothing lacking. No oppression, no hierarchy. Every person is provided for, valued, and treated equitably. Shalom is what God's kingdom looks like on earth. I mean, ever experienced what you might think is something like shalom? You know, where you sensed a closeness with God or, or other people that was so rich and powerful, it was almost hard to describe. I mean, there are times when we've gathered for worship or meaningful moments I've had in a, in a small group or, or opportunities where I've served alongside some of you that have made me think of shalom because there was a closeness, a, a sort of rightness, maybe even a wholeness about those times where I thought this is the way things were meant to be. That's the way it was in the beginning. And as God described this world as very good. But then something went terribly wrong. As the biblical narrative unfolds, God's dream, God's shalom is shattered. Uh, we read in Genesis 3 that a serpent approaches the first people and starts talking to them. Now, think about this with me a minute, okay? Why would anybody have a conversation with a snake? I mean, if a snake came up to me and said, hello, or hello, however a snake might talk, I mean, I'd be the first to say goodbye and get out of Dodge. See, I don't fully understand the concept of a talking snake, and scholars have different views about this, but somehow evil is personified, and the writer of Genesis chooses to describe this evil as a serpent. In this conversation, the serpent says that if Eve will eat of this one particular tree, the only one that God told him not to eat from, she will become like God. Now, my guess is that this part of the story sounds quite familiar. Maybe you've heard it like this. God had some rules, Adam and Eve don't obey the rules, so God punishes them, right? And it's almost like, you know, humanity has been in the doghouse ever since. Isn't that how we've heard this story? Well, here's the problem with that version of the story. If we believe that sin is only about rules and regulations, we miss the real tragic part of our story. You see, the serpent is crafty. And what he does here is this, and don't miss this, okay? He introduces doubt about God's intentions. He introduces doubt about God's intentions. And he still does that today. And he says to them, hey, you know, the consequences of eating the fruit is not that the humans will be put to death, not that you'll be put to death, but instead, no, you'll gain special knowledge. You'll then truly know good and evil. Now, see, God didn't command Adam and Eve not to eat of this tree because such knowledge is wrong. And it's not that God doesn't ever want Adam and Eve to know good and evil. That is precisely what he does want for them. But they have to go about gaining such knowledge his way. And obedience to God is the true path to knowing good and evil. 
The writer of Proverbs puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The reverence, respect, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so what the serpent offers Adam and Eve is almost like a shortcut to what God wants for them. And when they foolishly follow this path, instead of following God, it fractures that connection between God and his people that was established back in Genesis 2. And what do Adam and Eve do when they realize what they've done? They hide. They hide from God. They ate the fruit. Their eyes were opened. And this insight takes them from unashamed and naked to embarrassed and hiding. I mean, think of young children. You know, most little kids think nothing of running around the house completely naked, right, without a care in the world. In fact, if I'd let them, you know, I'm sure our kids would have run around the house naked, completely oblivious. Children are naive, simple. They don't know the concept of shame. Imagine, I mean, what would happen if while your child was running around naked, you could give him or her a magic cookie that would instantly give them the understanding of a 21-year-old. Most likely, he would run into the bedroom, lock the door, and find something to put over his private parts. Thus, the new use Adam and Eve found for fig leaves. And if you're still looking for a Halloween costume, I found this one. I'm happy to report that you can buy this G-rated Adam and Eve costume set, complete with fig leaves for $19.99. <laughs> There's something, everything wrong with these costumes. <laughs> I digress. Back to our story, though. The serpent tricked Adam and Eve into diverting from God's plan and taking a shortcut to gaining wisdom. They were like little kids who didn't have the shrewdness to withstand the serpent's craftiness. And the consequences? They were disastrous. Author Parker Palmer writes, Adam and Eve were driven from the garden because the kind of knowledge they reached for a knowledge that distrusted and excluded God. Their drive to know arose not from love, but from curiosity and control, from the desire to possess powers belonging to God alone. They failed to honor the fact that God knew them first, knew them in their limits as well as their potentials. In the refusal to know as they were known, they reached for a kind of knowledge that always leads to death. Sin is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is the culpable disruption of shalom. Sin is anything that fractures our connection with God or other people or anything that disrupts the way God intended for things to be. And we all sin. We might call it personal sin. It could be as simple as selfishly cutting someone off in traffic, refusing to tell the truth, or cheering for the Green Bay Packers. The most heinous of all sins, of course. Now, researcher Dan Airely did a massive study to try and understand why some people lie, cheat, and steal. Airely and his team went to college campuses and offered to pay students for every math puzzle they could solve in five minutes. At the end of the five minutes, the students were asked to grade their own papers and then shred them in the back of the room. Then the students stood in line and received money for every right answer but the students didn't know that the shredder didn't actually shred their papers so that the researchers could check to see if they were actually telling the truth. Airily found that on average, students reported solving six problems when in fact they had only solved four. And after testing 30,000 students, Airily found only 12 big cheaters compared to 18,000 small cheaters. The big cheaters stole a total of $150, while the small cheaters stole around thirty-six. dollars $1,000, just one or two dollars at a time. 
Early did this research project all over the world, in the United States, Western Europe, Turkey, Israel, China, and many other countries. And the results were roughly the same everywhere. And he concluded that most dishonesty happens among ordinary people who think of themselves as basically honest. But when added together, this little bit of dishonesty has huge impact. Most of the problems faced by the human race are not rooted in the lives of outliers and psychopaths, life's big cheaters. Our problems are rooted in the lives of typical, ordinary people who find ways to rationalize their own bad behavior. You might want to say we want to think of ourselves as honest people while enjoying the benefits of dishonesty. And I would say that is what happened with Adam and Eve. And it's what happens with us. The Apostle Paul reminds us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We are all guilty of personal sin. Now, sadly, as we continue in the story, the impact of sin grows even more devastating. And what starts with this initial disobedience of Adam and Eve expands through family violence and moves to massive corruption that eventually led to the flood. All of this demonstrated a continual movement away from God and away from shalom. So when we turn to Genesis chapter 11, we see sin emerge in a whole new way. The story of the Tower of Babel could be the earliest example of what we might call communal sin. Here we see a group of people joining together to chase their own vision for human flourishing. In verse four, we read this. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, God had commanded human beings at this point to multiply and populate the earth. But here in Genesis 11, we find a group of people who want to forge their own destiny. They don't want to be scattered away from where they are. And they want the rest of the world to be so impressed by their tower that no one will even try to scatter them. They don't believe that God is big enough or strong enough to truly care for them. And like Adam and Eve, they believed they knew better. As the story goes on, God looks on what is happening with concern. Old Testament scholar John Goldengate writes, God's unease at the building project focuses on its constituting a kind of assertion of independence, opening up the possibility of further acts of independence. The issues, again, parallel those of Adam and Eve. But this story considers them at the level of a people, not just an individual or married couple. And communal sin didn't just happen at the Tower of Babel. I mean, you know, throughout the Old Testament, we see the consequences of the Hebrew people. God gave them the law, which was his vision for their society to flourish. But over and over again, they failed to live by that wisdom, which resulted in social, cultural, and relational injustices. And sadly, this is not only an ancient story, this is our story. Communal sin is what has gone wrong with our world too. And there are so many examples of present day communal sin. It's when people in other communities or other parts of the world suffer as a result of our actions. It can include harm to the environment when we violate God's creation. Now, communal sin can include uh, profiting off of products that aren't ethically sustainable. Even if it is often unseen to the offenders, each time there are people who face consequences. I mean, some of us could even unintentionally benefit from systems and structures that are the result of communal sin. So what then should we do? Well, for centuries, 
the church, God's people, have engaged in a practice to help us face the reality of personal and communal sin. It's called confession. Confession is one of the longest standing practices of our faith community. In confession, we we go before God and we ask Him to search our hearts. It's us being honest about the ways we have fallen short. And again, we are all guilty of personal sin. And we're all guilty of participating in communal sin. But the Apostle John reminds us, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, God is faithful, he is just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness, if we confess our sin. You see, when we acknowledge our sin, when we are honest with God, he meets us where we are and and purifies us when we've fallen short. And so at this point in our story about a king and his kingdom community, we wanna create some space for us to get honest before God, to admit that sin is what has gone wrong with our world, to confess that sin is what has gone wrong with our lives. And so in these next few moments, The band is gonna play and sing, and I wanna encourage you to open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. And honestly ask him to show you any areas in your life where you are involved in personal sin. And confess those sins before God. Yeah, receive his forgiveness. Let's go ahead right now and take a few moments to confess our personal sin to the Lord. You know, many times we recognize our personal sin, but we're blind to, to the ways that we're involved in communal sin. Uh, there are so many systems and structures in our world that benefit some while hurting others. And so let's just take a few moments now to open up ourselves to the Holy Spirit in the area of communal sin. And like we just did with personal sin, let's confess those communal sins before God to receive his forgiveness. Okay, let's just take a few moments here to confess our communal sin to the Lord. <laughs> 